I'd like to welcome everyone to this weekend retreat. I hope you can all hear me okay. I see hands rising up in Anjali, so that's a good sign. Good to see your many small faces in the little boxes on the screen. And they're welcome to this virtual gathering. And so I'm very glad to have this opportunity to be together with you, at least virtually, in the respect of hearing the sound of at least my voice, <laughs> seeing each other's faces, and having the opportunity to practice Dhamma and to reflect on the teachings together for this weekend period. Some of you are very familiar with our monastery, our retreats, our routines. Some of you are less familiar, so we're fairly new to a number of you. We run these retreats form very similar to our monastic life, so we have a blend of traditional chanting and formal meditation practices, instruction in meditation, silent sitting and walking meditation. Now, through these days, I suspect you've read the literature about the retreat and had the introduction by the managers and so forth. But as we go along, I hope those of you who are new to all of this will be able to relate to what's going on. So this weekend, an opportunity to look at our minds, our lives, and to consider, to explore ways that we can find peace, ways we can find happiness, ways we can find freedom in this world of many limitations, many burdens and restrictions, particularly at this time, reason why we have this retreat online rather than here physically gathered together at Amravati. We're limited by the uh, restrictions of the COVID-19 pandemic and many and various other aspects of our lives. But this is exactly what the Buddha's teaching is, say, crafted to do. It's help us to look at our lives, to understand this life, this mind, and to see how we can find freedom. We can find true peace in a world of activity, a world of agitation, and a world of, of limitation. One of the most emphatic, profound statements that the Buddha made in his many teachings was that he said it was because of not understanding, not knowing four things that you and I and all living beings have had to travel and trudge through this long, long round of births and deaths. And so whether you like to think in terms of past lives and future lives or whether you are, don't like that kind of idea, <laughs> certainly this is the language and the understanding of um, classical Buddhist teachings, whether it's traveling and trudging through many lifetimes and different births and different planes of being, or whether it's just traveling and trudging through the many aspects of this life, through your infancy, your childhood, your adult, or older adult through the many ups and downs of our lives, whether it's across many lifetimes or just within this one lifetime, there's been a lot of traveling and trudging, I would suggest, for, for all of us, that sense of dealing with, say, hope and disappointment, success and failure, praise and criticism, gain and loss, love and hate, feelings of fulfillment and feelings of frustration, uh, without reading anybody's mind, just uh, statistically. This is how we are as human beings. This is 
the world as we experience it. So these four things that the Buddha pointed to, because of not understanding, not knowing, not appreciating these four things, that all of us have had to go through these many cycles of ups and downs, hopes and disappointments and so forth, uh, he outlined as what are known as the Four Noble Truths. So for many of us gathered together, this is familiar territory, familiar language. The Arya Satcha, the Noble Truths. For some of you signed up for this weekend, this will be a new framework for understanding. But the Four Noble Truths is cast in the form of a medical diagnosis. It's like talking about the spiritual disease of dissatisfaction, of incompleteness, feelings of insecurity or lack of fulfillment and discontent, dis-ease. So that the scriptural word for that quality of dis-ease or dissatisfaction is dukkha, which literally means that which is hard to bear or that which is out of balance, that is out of true, like a wheel that's not so settled on its axle in a true way, the, the wheel wobbles. It's not sitting perfectly on its axle. So dukkha is literally like when the wheel is out of balance. Du means wrong or bad. The akka is like the English word axle. It's the pin through the center of the wheel that the wheel spins around. So dukkha is where the wheel is out of whack, out of balance. And so any of us who've been in a supermarket pushing a trolley or in an airport with a luggage trolley that's got a wonky wheel that kind of continually drives off to the left or the right, that's dukkha. <laughs> that feeling of wrongness or things being out of true, out of balance. So that is the symptom of the spiritual disease. So in this format of the Four Noble Truths, the first is, here is the symptom. We're not totally happy all of the time. We don't feel free, we don't feel at peace, we don't feel complete. We don't have a quality of ease and contentment in our lives. Moments of sweetness and moments of delight but those are fleeting. They don't last. They can't be held and grasped. The Buddha pointed out to say, even though we might have an intuition or have a sense that there is an ultimate reality as, as a fundamental truth, there is a fundamental quality of transcendence and wholeness that is the very foundation or the fabric of reality, it's out of reach or we don't experience it, we don't know it. And so that that feeling of dukkha, that experience of dukkha is that quality of not being able to attune the heart to that fundamental truth, that reality, what we call dhamma. That we intuit it's there, but we can't taste it, we can't reach it. And that separation or that frustration, that lack of attunement to that fundamental reality, that fundamental truth, this is what we know as dukkha in our sort of Buddhist language. So that symptom of the things being, say, out of tune is called dukkha. So then the Buddha pointed out, okay, like, like a medical diagnosis, you know, you've gone to the doctor, the doctor says, you know, what's the problem? Where does it hurt? And then examining the symptoms, then the doctor names the cause. Oh, it's because you've got an injury on your leg or you're allergic to this kind of food or you've been out in the sun too long, that your skin has got burnt or you've got a digestive problem, whatever that they point to the cause. So the second of the noble truths is where that dukkha, that feeling of dissatisfaction comes from. And the Buddha highlighted that quality of self-centered craving, tanha, or 
that the kind of desire that's based around feelings of self, I and me and mine, whether it's a coarse kind of desire or subtle kinds of desire, that kind of craving, that's the cause, that's the infection, that's the COVID <laughs> virus, that's the virus that's causing the trouble. Then the third noble truth is the prognosis. Is it curable? So the good news is, yeah, the, the system can be free of this particular bug. There, there can a state of perfect health, spiritual health, is something that can be realized. The heart can be attuned to that fundamental reality of, of its own nature, that the heart can fully know the reality of Dhamma, or that reality of ultimate truth. It can know that. It can embody that. It can be fully in harmony with that. And with that harmonization, that attunement, then there is freedom, there's peace, there is total ease. Even though there is still the limitations of the sense world, we still have to eat and breathe and we still have to pay bills and deal with uh, heat and cold and the aging process. But the heart is fully at ease with those changes in the sensory world. That quality of fulfillment, the Buddha, in a very understated way, just called the ending of dukkha, or the ending of that disharmony, the ending of that imbalance. So you can think of it as the heart, the mind, fully in tune with nature, with reality. And the effect of that attunement is one of great fulfillment, contentment, ease, peacefulness doesn't mean that all your bills will be paid or that <laughs> all of your ailments will disappear. It doesn't mean that the aging process will stop. But what it means is that the heart will be fully at ease with those changes, those aspects of the experiential field as they take shape, as they arise within, say, the, the sphere of our lives for each one of us. So that's the third truth, is the prognosis. Yes, this spiritual malaise is curable. And then the fourth truth is the treatment. Okay, how do you get to that state of well-being? How is that wholeness, that wellness, that health, that wholeness? In English, those words are closely related. Wholeness, health, hail, also H-A-L-E. Yeah, those are all related to that, to the same root meaning. Wholeness, health, well-being, these are all qualities that are deeply connected. The treatment is what is known as the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's description of how to bring, say, our attitudes, our actions, our words into alignment with that reality, how to train the mind, how to use meditation and the qualities of wisdom to bring about that alignment. That's the medicine, that's the treatment that the spiritual doctor prescribes. For many of us, these are familiar words. Our oh, Four Noble Truths, are we right? This, for many of us, this is sort of chapter one, page one, Buddhism. This is all well known. But I would rewind to the, where I began, the Buddha saying, because of not understanding, not fully knowing these four things, you and I and all beings have had to travel and trudge through this long, long round. So we might understand the words, we might have read the book, and we might have, say, comprehended the superficial sense of those words, but because of those not being taken to heart, then still we find the mind is spun around by hope and fear, gain and loss, praise and criticism, comfort and discomfort, and those worldly winds blow us around. 
we're less than totally happy, we're less than totally free, we're less than, than totally peaceful at all times. So I felt that this weekend, these are helpful principles to look at, even though it's very familiar territory. It's like breathing is familiar too. Like, oh, not in-breath, out-breath. Oh, not that again. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know about breathing. I've done that before. But yes, we need oxygen to stay alive. It is a familiar pattern, but it's a familiar pattern that is essential to the living process. So similarly, the words of the Four Noble Truths, it's familiar, it's a well-known format, but I would say it's essential to light, essential to spiritual life, as oxygen is to the life of this body, I would suggest. <laughs> One of the great forest Ajans, the forest masters of Thailand, Lumpur Dun, uh, who was a disciple of Venerable Ajahn Man, he had a way of reformulating or considering these four truths rather than in the format that they are presented, sort of symptom, cause, prognosis, treatment, <laughs> in that kind of format. He liked to talk about it in terms of the kind of time sequence of these four qualities. So to reshuffle them, to look at them in terms of how they function in time. His way of speaking about the four qualities, I feel, is very helpful. So I thought I would share this with everyone this evening or this afternoon, if you're the west of us or <laughs> the middle of the night, or if to the east of England, up in India or Thailand. And this is a globally located retreat. We are um, all physically here, or technically digitally here in the Shrine Room at Amravati, but physically we're all over the planet, everywhere from Thailand and India to uh, the USA and points west. But when Lumpur Dun spoke about this, he reshuffled them into the order cause, the cause of suffering, so truth number two, first, so there's the cause, and then the result of that cause is dukkha, is suffering. And then there is the treatment, Truth number four, and then the effect of the treatment is the cure, is the ending of dukkha. So instead of truths going one, two, three, four, they go two, one, four, three. That's a bit too complicated for a Friday evening <laughs> to get your mind around. You can see it in terms of the cause of dukkha is self-centered craving, and the result of that is feeling of alienation, insecurity, dukkha, suffering. And then the treatment is the Eightfold Path, virtue, concentration, wisdom. And the effect of applying that treatment is the ending of dukkha, the quality of harmony or liberation. That's the effect of it. I feel this is a helpful way of describing it. And then when he was talking about this, Lumpur Dun would speak about it in a very, very simple, straightforward way, particularly in terms of mind training. So he highlighted that the cause, like the first stage of the process, first element of the process, he said, the mind going out and getting lost in its moods, that is the cause of dukkha. That's what creates disharmony. The mind getting lost in its moods. That's the cause of it. And the effect of that going outness is then having got lost in its moods then that is the experience of dissatisfaction, of dukkha. Then the treatment is the, the mind knowing the mind 
is what leads to the ending of dukkha. It's what leads to peace, to freedom, to ease. And the result of the mind knowing the mind is that peacefulness, is that ease. So that's a much more simple and direct way to look at that. The mind getting lost in its moods, that's the cause. Having got lost in its moods, that's dukkha. (laughs) That's the state of dissatisfaction and suffering. Having got lost in your likes, your dislikes, your fears, your hopes, your opinions, your regrets, and your rightness, your wrongness. (laughs) The mind getting born into that, lost in that, that is the experience of alienation, of dukkha, dissatisfaction. But then the mind knowing the mind, that is the treatment. So that quality of wise reflection, that quality of knowing that says, oh, I've got lost in my feeling of regret. I've got lost in this hope. I've got lost in this fear. I've got lost in this plan. I've got lost in this nostalgia. Oh, look at that. Here's the mind getting caught up in like and dislike, comfort, discomfort. Aha, that's what's happening. And the effect of that seeing is there is a letting go. There's a breaking, a loosening of that identification. And in that moment, the heart is freed from its bondage. It is freed from that cycle. It's freed from identification with that mood, that thought, that feeling, uh, that particular object. And in that moment, the heart is liberated, not permanently and absolutely, but in that moment of freedom from grasping, uh, that moment of letting go, then the heart is no longer bound or limited by the objects of its experience, things that are seen, heard, smelt, tasted, touched, thought, remembered, imagined. The Buddha's teaching then, and practice of meditation, and hopefully what we'll explore together and develop during this weekend, is how to get from truth number two to truth number three, (laughs) from the habits of grasping to the ending of dukkha, the ending of dissatisfaction and alienation. That's the purpose of these teachings. That's the purpose of gathering together for this kind of an event. Why we have places like Amravati Monastery, why we shave our heads and wear robes and take on these the way of life, Buddhist nuns and monks, Buddhist lay practitioners. This is why we all do this, I would suggest, is to get from truth number two to truth number three, from the origin, what causes the trouble, to the ending of the trouble. And it's through understanding how the mind gets lost and knowing that and then learning how to work skillfully with that, that's how the quality of peace and freedom is found. That's essentially what we're gathered together to do. When the Buddha explained this process, he gave many teachings about the Four Noble Truths, the fine detail or the fine sort of detailed explanation of how that all works is a process called dependent origination. It's like the fine anatomy of how to get from truth number two to truth number three, (laughs) from the origin of the trouble to the ending of the trouble. In many, many of his teachings, he spelled that out in quite refined ways. And I would fully agree that it's not possible to get through every dimension of dependent origination and understand it completely during the course of one weekend. (laughs) that it's a very subtle and multifaceted subject. But I felt it would be good over this time to pick up some essential elements of that and to explore that, because, again, see how this 
mind has got lost in its moods, how it's been lost <laughs> and how it can be found. This is the potential that we have, and these teachings on dependent origination and how that cycle, of how we get lost, how we can be found, to use that phraseology. These are very helpful tools, helpful and beneficial ways of understanding that, that we can use and that can help us to understand these strange lives of ours and to guide them towards a genuine quality of fulfillment and freedom and ease. As different ways, different representations of the teaching on dependent origination, again, it is subtle and complex. And when Venerable Ananda once made the comment to the Buddha saying, oh, this teaching on dependent origination, it's something that's clear as clear can be to me. And the Buddha said, not so, Ananda, not so. We frequently said, not so, Ananda. One of his regular comments, and that he realized Ananda had a lot of faith. He was very wise and committed, but also he was overestimating things in this respect. The Buddha said, no, no, Ananda, don't say that, don't say that. You know, dependent origination is subtle, it's profound, it's, it's abstruse, it's not easy to understand. <laughs> yeah, it takes a, a lot of application and a lot of time to understand it fully. So not to put you off, but rather to say, yeah, it does take quite some time to get a comprehensive feel for how that works. But my sense is over this weekend, we can look at a few aspects of that that will be helpful to, for us to understand and to see how the mind doesn't have to be locked in these endless traveling and trudging around the long round of birth and death, the long round of hope and disappointment and repeating the same habits you know, over and over again with equal amounts of hope and frustration, disappointment, and then more hope, more frustration, disappointment, and so on and so forth. It's also interesting to me that the Buddha said, you know, one who understands, one who sees dependent origination, sees the Dhamma, that he pointed, that this is really the core of the Four Noble Truths. If the mind really has an appreciation for how this process works, this is the same as, or equivalent to, or is say, synonymous with understanding the Dhamma itself. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So what we're doing is recognizing the engine of how the mind gets lost in its moods and its thoughts and feelings, perceptions, how that happens, and also that we are not victims of the mind's habits. We're not victims of the events of the world, say the people around us, the circumstances around us. But this mind can make a difference. And that's really the key to the whole thing is that what we do with this mind, the attitude we have, the way this mind works with the experience of the present moment, it makes a difference. We're not victims of circumstance. The Buddha's teaching is not a teaching of passivity. It's a teaching of effort, of application. And so it's key to us in understanding this process, then the mind can be guided to make a difference. And so that, what we call the cycles of birth and death, the bhava chakra, the wheel of becoming, it's not something that we're sort of stuck on for eternity, but rather there are exit points. There are ways that that wheel can be let go of. The heart can break free from that can be freed from that wheel of birth and death. And 
by understanding how that process works, the various different aspects of the cycles of dependent origination, how they work, then by seeing how they work, then we can make those choices. We can steer the mind to relate to our experience and how things work in a skillful way and can free the heart, free the mind from the cycles of addiction, the cycles of compulsive and habitual behavior, how we get locked as we so easily do, just making the same mistakes, following the same patterns and feeling the same frustrations and disappointments again and again and again. The time is passing for this evening's session, but I will just say that in the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths, he highlights craving, panha, as the cause of dukkha. And in that, the, the cycles of dependent origination, I'll talk a bit more about the different aspects of that, what we call the, the 12 links that make up that whole causal chain. Of those links, the weakest point of that whole causal chain is that of craving. And he said that's where the mind drifts from feelings of like and dislike into the craving of like turns into I've got to have and dislike turns into I can't stand. So the Buddha points to that link between feeling and craving. That's the weakest point. <laughs> so in the Four Noble Truths, he says that tanha, craving, that's the cause of dukkha because it's like that's the place to put our attention most directly and consistently. If we can understand how feeling drifts into craving and we can train the mind to not do that, then we've gone a long way to freeing the heart from those compulsive cycles of addiction. Again, just to say this is one of the things I like to be exploring over this weekend, is to see how by meditating on feeling, getting to know the feelings of comfort, discomfort, like and dislike, and seeing how you can like something without having to want it. You can like say, this is delicious, well, that's beautiful. You can like and say, this is beautiful, this is delicious, this is ex exactly how I feel it should be. Yes. And then that feeling of like doesn't have to turn into, I've got to have, I've got to keep, I've got to get more of this, <laughs> well, this is better than the other person's. The mind doesn't have to do that. Similarly with dislike, things can be painful or ugly and we can say that's the horrible color, or that's an awful taste, or this is really painful. There can be dislike, and it's still not pleasant, but the mind doesn't have to drift from disliking into hating or fearing or resenting or rejecting. And if nothing else, over the course of this time, I'd really like to explore that and help us to develop that skill of being able to know you can like without wanting and you can dislike without hating. And if we can just do that <laughs> as human beings, if we can learn just that skill, then life opens up in a very expansive and delightful way, because we find that we can enjoy the beautiful, enjoy what is pleasant and delightful, but we don't have to be possessive about it. There is that sense of trying to keep and to own, or being identified with a thing that we've got, but rather you can delight in the presence of a beautiful thing like the luminous colors of a sunset, 
And that's probably a very good example because you can't keep those luminous colors. Even if you take a picture, <laughs> still that kind of the delightful luminosity, that radiance that's there in the sky just at that moment with the setting sun lights up all the clouds. It's only there for a minute or two and then whoosh, the, the glow has gone, the vivid quality has gone. And even if you've taken a picture, the picture can only stay delightful for so long. And after five minutes or 10 minutes of looking at the picture, it's yeah. <laughs> you put it away and find yourself looking for some other interest or some other activity or stimulation. If we can learn how to delight in what's pleasant without seeking to get more of it, or we can learn to be with the painful and not fearing it, hating it, resenting it, or negotiating with it, then I would suggest that we find our life is a lot more spacious, a lot more easeful. And that's really one of the most helpful and directly beneficial qualities of understanding this multifaceted process of dependent origination. I'll try not to baffle you with too many Pali words over the weekend, <laughs> but just using a few here and there. But it's really this particular skill, this particular way of relating to our experiences of like and dislike. This, I feel, is one of the most precious and wonderful qualities of the Buddha's teaching, one of the most marvelous inheritances that we have from the Buddha's teachings. And if we can apply that in our daily lives, I would suggest it makes all the difference in the world. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening.